0: I just wanted to welcome you to the age of unbelief. The age of unbelief, as Matt Chandler dubs it, in his new book, and you can, you can pick up a copy uh, off of Amazon, called Take Heart, Christian Courage in the Age of Unbelief. He says, we're leaving behind what might be the most unusual period of human history for God's people If you consider the people of God throughout the history of humanity and around the world, we've rarely been at the center of cultural and political power. In fact, the very roots, as we've been seeing in the book of Acts, of the church grew from the soil of a Roman empire that attempted to stamp out the faith early on. Feeding early Christians to lions, putting them in prison, crucifying them upside down, and boiling them alive. For about 300 years, in fact, this was life in the church. If you were a Christian, you were persecuted. There was no option otherwise. But all that changed when the church got in bed with the state, Essentially, from Constantine's reign in the early 300s, even till the present day, Christendom and its effects has been the norm into which we and almost all of our traceable ancestors were born. That world, Christendom, where the church has affluence and political power and even cultural influence... And everyone's a Christian because, well, that's just where you live, ruled in a nation by people who are quote-unquote Christian leaders. But today, Matt Chandler goes on to say, we're in the age of unbelief because we are in the twilight of Christendom. The church, once again, is being pushed into the margins, and that's very uncomfortable for us. Fear runs rampant across our cultural landscape, and especially and increasingly, fear sits in the pews of our churches. But marginalization will help people realize, no, you know, I really don't care for Jesus. I I just thought church was fun. It was just a hobby of mine. Christ didn't really have my heart. I just found a place where I could play volleyball sometimes with some buddies. And that is not a bad thing. Those folks will walk away from Christ and the church as the culture pushes the church to the margins once again. Even as Jesus said, the love of many will grow cold. Where we find ourselves headed today is going to be much more like the days of the life of the early church. We continue this morning in our, book, in our study of the book of Acts. We've been thinking about this travel journey of Luke's as he traces the birth and early development of the, of the, of the church, the, the, the ecclesia of God, the gathering of God, And we've been doing it under this heading, Jesus Gospel Gathering for Gospel Going. What is the book of Acts all about? It's about Jesus Gospel Gathering. Jesus owns us. He's paid the price for us. He's bought us at the cost of His own blood. We are His and we are His Gospel Gathering. The church is not this building or any other building. As Joe said, we are the house of God. We are gathered around the gospel. That's what the word ecclesia, the word translated church in your Bibles, really means. We are Jesus' gospel gathering, but we don't just gather because we all of one mind to hang out and enjoy being like-minded. We gather around the gospel that we may go with the gospel and on behalf of the gospel to those who've yet to meet our Savior. And so, this morning we pick up our study in Acts chapter twenty-one. We're going to be looking at verse 7, picking it up in verse 17, just a few minutes, if you want to find that, it'll be on the screen. And as we come to this text this morning, we find Paul now in Jerusalem. You remember we got him there just before Palm Sunday, Sunday before Palm Sunday, we got Paul to Jerusalem, and then we just kind of we made sure he was had a place to stay for the night. He was at Nason's house. We put him up for the night, we laid him to bed there uh, at Nason's house, and so he's been in safekeeping the whole time since we've been gone. But now we find him there in Jerusalem, and it's going to get a little edgy. It'll be his last visit to Jerusalem, his last time to ever worship in the temple. And before we're done today, he'll be arrested. And note this as you think about the book of Acts as a whole, he will remain a prisoner for the rest of the book. From chapter 21, uh, about mid- midway through the end of the book, Paul will remain a, tri- a prisoner, first there in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, and finally in Rome where the book of Acts ends. But even as a prisoner, Paul shows us how to live out the witness of courageous humility. That's what I want to show you this morning, the witness of courageous humility. You see, we can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living in courageous humility. Don't you agree in this world it takes courage to live humbly? It's more difficult to live humbly than to live arrogantly. It's more difficult to put yourself second than to try to be number one in our world. We can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living in courageous humility. And Paul himself is the witness of this courageous humility. You'll remember Paul said back in Acts 21, verse 13, what are you doing? The, the, the Ephesians, were you remember, they were weeping. They were at begging him not to go to Jerusalem because, because the Spirit had made it clear through a, through a prophecy that he would, be, he would suffer there. Things like imprisonment, but we'll see in just a few minutes, more than imprisonment. And he says to them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready, I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's courage, but that's also courageous humility. And we'll see how as we go this morning. First of all, I want you to notice with me this morning, we can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living in courageous humility. And first of all, courageous humility submits to God's praise. What does it look like to live in courageous humility? First of all, humility submits to God's praise. And to say that another way, courageous humility makes our lives about God's glory. We submit to God's praise. We submit. We put ourselves second. It's all about Him getting the praise. Pick it up in verse 17 of Acts 21. Luke says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. Based on that last phrase, And based on the the sentence that precedes it, when Paul started talking to James and the elders, who was he talking about? Oh boy, who was he telling them about? Look at look at the verse. Don't look at me. He was telling about what God had done. Right. What he didn't do was go see James. He was kind of understood as the head of the the mother church there in Jerusalem. He didn't go and say, James, you know, you think you're something. Let me tell you about me. I've been the world over, and I've I've started a bunch of churches, and, I mean, people come to Christ left and right, pagans that were doing all sorts of things we Jews can't even fathom being involved in. They, they, They worship Jesus, the Messiah now. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you what I've been doing. No, it says there, He began to relate one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. Their response proves what he was talking about. Courageous humility, you see, submits to God's praise. Paul was okay, and in fact, only okay, when things were all about him, uh, all about God and not about him. Now, it's not stated here, but you can just make a note. If you look over at Acts 24, verse 17, we learn that Paul, this day, where we're at in Acts 21, gave the offerings, You remember, that he'd been collecting from the Gentile churches, particularly the churches of Macedonia, those poorest of churches. He gave those offerings to James and the church at Jerusalem. Acts 24, 17 tells us that. And this certainly was one of the things that Paul related to James, one of, one of the, the works of God, how God had worked in even the poorest of churches to produce a rich and abundant offering to provide to the persecuted church in Jerusalem. Courageous humility submits to God's praise, and we think, live, sp- and speak. For the glory of God. We can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living lives of courageous humility. And courageous humility, first of all, submits to God's praise. How do you live your life? Are you humble enough to realize that if God has saved you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then life is not about you. You are bought at a price. You're no longer your own. It's all about Him. Can you give away the praise to make sure others praise Him? Secondly, courageous humility submits to God's people. So when he gets done talking about all God had been doing, verse 20, the second part, it says, "...and they said to him, James and the elders, "'You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed.'" talking about those Jews there specifically in Israel, they are all zealous for the law and they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This would be the Nazarite vow. We've talked about this a little bit earlier. Paul took a Nazarite vow just not long before this particular occasion. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, and, and just to fill that out a little bit, if you're with us for the first time, a Nazarite vow was just a, a way to set yourself apart to God in a special way, and so the men would not cut their hair. They wouldn't drink anything, any fruit of the vine, whether grape juice or wine or any of that, uh, and, and they would do other things. There were other offerings that were involved in that vow um, for, an ex- for you know, whatever determined period of time to consecrate themselves especially to the Lord. We have these four men who are under a vow take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in obedience of the law but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That, you remember, happened back in Acts 15. Then Paul took the men, and, on the, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. You see, these Jewish believers were continuing to practice parts of the Old Testament law as part of their worship of Jesus, sort of like modern day messianic Jews. They they understood, James and his crew there in the in the early church in Jerusalem, understood that this wasn't for salvation, that by doing things like a Nazarite vow, you didn't earn brownie points with God. That didn't have part, wasn't part of your salvation, but it was a God prescribed way to honor God from the Old Testament law. And it was an important part of, of their personal worship. Now, 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 Paul could have, in this situation, said, do y'all remember who I am? I mean, you really expect me, you got these four guys doing this vow, which is fine, but you expect me to pay for their purification offering and, and, and do all this? I mean, did you not just hear everything I just told you that God's doing in the Gentile world through my preaching? I mean, I came up here to Jerusalem to be nice to you guys, but I mean, I really could care less about what y'all think about me. We know in other places he really didn't care, ultimately, what people thought, did he? Not to the point of changing the message of the gospel. He could have said, you know, I, I just, it doesn't matter to me what all the Jews in Jerusalem think. Because I'm called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that because Paul did care and love the church of Jesus Christ, the Jesus gathering of God. He loved the church at Jerusalem. That's why he was willing to submit to God's people, to the authority of James and the other elders of the Jerusalem ecclesia and to show love for his Jewish brothers and sisters who, most importantly, were also one with him in Christ. Whether he did or didn't, continue to, to, to practice all the various elements of the Old Testament law, we don't really know. We know there was a transition, right? This was a transitional time, the book of Acts was. And, and the fulfillment of all the things the temple and its worship and the law talked about was in Christ. It just took some time for all that to work itself out. But some Jews probably continue to do certain things in their worship of Messiah Jesus. Paul loved The Ecclesia of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons for Paul's visit here in Jerusalem was to build practical unity between the Jewish Jesus followers, especially in Jerusalem, and the Gentile Jesus followers all over the world from the places he'd just been, right? On those three missionary journeys we've looked at. You see, Paul's passion was to see a unified, multi-ethnic ecclesia of Jesus where distinctive love and service overflowed out lives together into the world with the effect of drawing Christ. And so Paul says, I'll be glad to do that, James. I'll be glad to so love my Jewish brothers in Christ... To clear up any confusion... By the way, did Paul speak against the law, against Jerusalem, against the temple? Did he do any of that? No, they got a bad report. What did he say? He said you can't get saved by law-keeping. You can't get your sins forgiven by trying to not sin and do everything God requires. Nobody's perfect. The law is given to show us we need Messiah, the Savior God would send. That's what he said. But he never spoke bad of God's law. He never spoke bad of the temple. And so it was all a misunderstanding. But to clear it up, he said, I'll be glad to do that. And so he did. He went and paid their purification offering and uh, went through the purification ceremony himself. Because, you see, his passion was to see a unified, multi-ethnic ecclesia of Jesus where distinctive love and service overflowed into the world with the effect of drawing others to Christ. That's why he brought the offering. So he could say to the church at Jerusalem, Hey, guys, here's the heart of your Gentile brothers. They are your brothers now. They've trusted Israel's Messiah, Jesus. And here's their heart for you. These people could barely, in Macedonia, they, could barely, they, could, they, could, they couldn't afford to give. But they gave beyond their ability that you might have relief in your suffering here in Jerusalem. And so in all that, he was trying to build the bridge between Jew and Gentile. This week, believers from all over the country gathered for MLK 50, it was called, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King, Jr., you know, we've not come as far as toward true racial unity as those who've always enjoyed white privilege as we'd like to think we have and pretend that we have. Our nation is still rife with racial tensions and even out-and-out strife in places, is it not? In fact, American Christians in the past supported segregation and slavery and and unjust laws creating a world where the scars of the past remain even today. Russell Moore of our own uh, Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission said this this week, time and time again in the white American Bible belt, the people of God had to choose between Jesus Christ and Jim Crow. And tragically in many And tragically, many often chose to serve Jim Crow and to rename him Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, has publicly repented of its racism and its part in those things years ago and asked the African-American community for our forgiveness and that many in our denomination even today are working hard in love, to erase racism toward any ethnic group, not just African-Americans, but all, and replace it with the family love that ought to be there, as we all stand united in the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can't serve Jesus Christ and Jim Crow at the same time. Or whatever version of discrimination and prejudice such takes, whatever, whatever form it takes in your heart and life, in your community, with whatever nationality it may be. Here in L.J., our challenge is, as a predominantly and even overwhelmingly, actually, white church, our challenge is to reach our community where the nations are coming to us. And if we don't reflect the demographics of our community then is it not pretty obvious that we simply can't say we're reaching our community? Amen? Y'all all all right? Yeah. Ray Ortland said this week, too many Christians sat out the civil rights movement the first time around. Now the Lord is graciously giving us, us Christians a second chance. We won't get a third. And so let's make it practical this morning. What act of humble service to someone that looks and talks differently than you is our Father calling you to today? Maybe that's a brother in Christ of a different ethnicity. And you know the Lord's calling you to love your brother in in a certain way, to serve that person at work in a certain way. Maybe it's an unbeliever of a different ethnicity. Maybe the Lord's Word to you this morning, there's no difference. The ground's level, at the foot of the cross. The Bible says all have sinned. Even the whitest of the white have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need a Savior. And there's no difference because the color of our skin, the the race, the, the country of origin, none of that makes any difference before holy God who made all Nations of men from one man. It may be something as simple as a smile to the Guatemalan mother and, uh, and, and her children in the grocery store. Or it could be asking the Eastern Indian attendant and owner of the convenience store, how is days going? It may be joining with us as we, as a church, seek to serve the Hispanic community by offering free English classes and and homework help for Students, their children, kindergarten through the sixth grade, beginning next fall. If you're interested in that, see me. You see, courageous humility submits to God's people in such a way that we reach across ethnic lines to love and serve and share Jesus with all. So that that ecclesia from, as the Scripture says in Revelation, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be a reality. Not just in the sweet by and by, but in our midst, even here today, in our lifetime. We can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living lives of courageous humility. Do you have the courage for this? Are you up to it? Thirdly and finally, courageous humility submits to God's plan, and I want you to see here, even if it means suffering. We pick it up in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, that is the, the seven days of purification involved in the Nazarite vow of the guys Paul was, was paying the offering for. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple... Now, these this is important to understand who these people are. These are Jews who opposed Paul in the places where he went into the synagogue... To preach the gospel first, remember he always went to the synagogue first, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He would go to the Jewish synagogues first and proclaim to them, "Hey, you need to know, your Messiah has shown up. And his name's Jesus Christ. He lived, died and was buried for three days, dead, rose from the dead, he lives today, He ascended to heaven. He reigns. And if you'll turn from sin and turn to Christ, you can be saved. And that was the message he preached. What happened all the time when he would go? Sometimes a few would believe. Some would actually believe and see in the words of the book book of Isaiah the truth that he was talking about and accept Christ as Savior. But so many times it wasn't the Gentiles. It wasn't the pagans. It was the church people. It was the Jews at the synagogue who stoned him, beat him, made sure he ended up spending a night or two in jail. These Jews, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere. By the way, you know when there's that kind of overstatement at the beginning of a sentence, you're in trouble. He's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him. Remember, he spent two and a half, or about over three years in in Ephesus. This was one of his friends who apparently had come. By the way, why are so many people here? Why are these people from other countries coming? Just because they're interested in Paul, giving him a hard time, or hanging out with Paul? No, it's the Feast of Pentecost at this particular point. For they had previously seen Trophimus, probably two million people, in the city of Jerusalem, and if you've ever been there, that's amazing. That's crazy. It can't hold two million, but it did. Every time there was Pentecost or Passover or whatever. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And listen, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They just saw him walking around town. But because they were together and they later saw Paul in the temple, they thought he'd brought this Gentile into the temple. They, su- they supposed They assumed. When you have all these superlatives used, everyone, everywhere, and you're going to be in trouble, you're going to be wrong, you're going to be off, and there's going to be trouble. So there was. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. John Stott says of this shutting of the gates of the temple, the slam gates seemed to symbolize the final Jewish rejection of the gospel. They closed the door on the messenger of the gospel once and for all. And just a few years later in AD seventy, the city, including the temple, fell, even as Christ had prophesied it would. Verse 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, are Are you tracking? They've made stuff up about the guy. They've laid hands on him, gone way past invading his personal space. They've dragged him out of the temple. I mean, they've picked him up. They're carrying him out. And now we're told they're seeking to kill him. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. By the way, when you're in the wrong and when you're messing with God's people, it's chaos. Mob rule is always chaotic and confusing, is it not? He at once took soldiers, this tribune, and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune ordered, uh, came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Couple things the the, the temple the temple area where they would have been dragging him out of and, and into the streets was right next to the Antonia Fortress. Jim, you're going to see it when you go to Jerusalem in a little while. The, the, the remains of the Antonia Fortress, and and that's where the tribune was. And so he literally could look out his window and see what was going on, and he and he came down to 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 clear it up. The last phrase of verse 33, he ordered him to be bound with two chains. The tribune ordered Paul to be bound with two chains. The prophecy of Agabus, do you remember it? Acts 21, 10, and 11 is here fulfilled. Remember the vision? Agabus said, "Bring me, Paul, give me your belt. And then he bound his feet and hands with the belt of Paul, and he said, the man to whom this belt belongs, this is how he's going to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to you, Paul, when you go up to Jerusalem. And here it is, bound with two chains. By the way, had the tribune here not rescued Paul in the clear, sovereign providence of God, they would have beaten him to death. Josephus tells us that there was an inscription on the dividing wall between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple. There was a place where believing Gentiles during the days of Judaism could go. But on the wall that separated Gentile courts from the rest of the temple, there was an inscription that basically said, no Gentiles past this point, venture further at the risk of your life and know that you'll be responsible for your own death if you go any further. And typically what happened is the Romans, though they could watch it from the Antonia Fortress, typically the, the Romans just let the Jews have their way with folks who violated the temple rules. So the fact that the tribune interrupted this attempted killing is significant, and it makes it real clear that God intervened to protect Paul, who the Spirit had told, you have to go to Jerusalem, but not only that, on to Rome. And where is he now? He's in Jerusalem. If he's still got to go to Rome, he's still got to be alive to get there. And so the sovereign hand of God saw to it. text goes on, he inquired who he was, And what he had done, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, mob rule. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, what are the facts when everybody's aggravated and and there's a mob brewing, right? Who cares about the facts? He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him, away with him. Away with him! Does this scene remind you of anything we've been recently thinking about? Huh? Does it? Sounds a lot like the events leading up to and on Good Friday, the day they yelled to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, about Jesus Christ. I I agree with the majority of scholars, not that they care, but I agree with the majority of scholars that see Luke intentionally paralleling his gospel's account of Jesus' suffering here in the book of Acts, with the sufferings of Paul, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In fact, they were sort of written as one volume in two parts. And at the end of Luke, he talks about the sufferings of Jesus, and now at the end, from here to the end of the book, the, the sufferings of Paul are described, and they're put in parallel on purpose. Of course, now, Paul's sufferings were not at all saving, right? But the point is, if you follow Jesus, you should expect to be treated like Jesus was treated. Both Jesus and Paul, it's interesting, some parallels here. Both Jesus and Paul were rejected by the Jews. Both Jesus and Paul were wrongly accused and, and misrepresented. Both Jesus and Paul were slapped in the face, literally, in court. We haven't got to that yet in our text, but we will in a couple weeks. I think maybe next week. Both Jesus and Paul were victims of plots to be killed. Both Jesus and Paul had five different trials. And both Jesus and Paul heard the cries cries of a mob for their own deaths. Same city, 25 years later, and for the same reason the good news of a once-for-all atonement and grace to forgive all of our sins and the free gift of righteousness from Jesus before a holy God. It was Jesus' life, his perfection, his teaching that sent him to the cross, and it was his preaching of Jesus that sent Paul to prison in Jerusalem. And hear me, it will always be like this. In fact, this little period of history that we've been talking about, we begin by talking about this morning, called Christendom, is the anomaly of human history. In some places, it hasn't been like that. But Jesus told us to expect it in John 15, verse 19. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Can I just say here? If the world loves you as its own, the chances are there's something that's not distinctive about who you are. There's a reason they love you as their own, right? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's normal for Christians. Jesus said, if you follow me, that's what it's going to be, or you're not following me. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Matthew 24 verse 9 he said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus told us to expect it. Paul told us suffering is the norm in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 where he said, indeed all who who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I, I, I wished I could fix that. What do you mean fix that, that Bible verse, Chad? Well, I'm just, I'm being facetious, but I wish I could fix that. All? I don't like that. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because here's the thing, you've got to ask yourself if you're not being persecuted, what's the problem? There must be something in our lives that is not drawing enough attention from the world to bring some sort, some form, some level of persecution. Church around the world today, the church out of the West especially, but even in the West now, Europe, especially Great Britain, is seeing more and more marginalization of the church. You see, courageous humility submits to God's plan even if it means suffering, and it does mean suffering. And yet, Matt Chandler says... This is a great time to be a Christian because the church thrives on the margins. It gives us the perspective required to see that Christendom was essentially a mirage. All those centuries from 300 on as the church lay in bed with the state and enjoyed all of the power and influence and money this world has to offer, it was a mirage. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. It's the church of Jesus Christ in name only. What we need is courageous humility that comes from the gospel and rests on the person of Jesus himself and his personal presence in our lives. We can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living in courageous humility. As Chandler goes on to say, if we have a God-sized, God-given courage, then we will be freed up. To be the people of God, living out the mission of God, marked by the joy of God, with courage. Even with courageous humility, this season of history can be viewed not with fear and trepidation, but instead with hope and a sense of opportunity. Welcome to the age of unbelief. The church can thrive here. All we need is Christian courage. Take heart. Because, you see, we can be powerful witnesses for Jesus by living in courageous humility that submits to God's praise, submits to God's people, and submits to God's plan. And in so doing, if we'll do those things, we will be powerful witnesses for Jesus. Courageous humility will make you stand out. And the world will take notice. And they'll be drawn to the beautiful Savior whom you're willing to even Suffer for, but never deny, ignore, or compromise. Do you love him like that? He loved you enough to give his own life for you. That's why Paul says, in view of God's mercy, I exhort you give your bodies, your lives, a living sacrifice to the one who died for you. Let's pray together.